Hello everyone, this is Mark Holt, host of Gospel Doctrine, and this week I'm doing something a little different. I'm replaying an episode I did a year ago. It seems I had the same idea last year that the church had this year, which was, I felt like leaping forward in time and talking about Easter at Easter time. And I did that by talking about the events of Holy Week, and it turns out that's exactly the idea the church had for our lesson this week. This was my first ever special episode, which means that it came outside of the normal curriculum, as you can tell by the season zero designation. But I don't mind replaying this because we're going to get the chance to talk about all this stuff again when we cover the resurrection and the crucifixion, the atonement, in about two months. Meanwhile, this week, we've got a great lesson in the Come Follow Me manual, which has a day-by-day breakdown of the, of the events of Holy Week. And if you were to make that Make those scriptures referenced there, the topic of your personal study this week. I think it would be time well spent. You will have read Matthew 21 through 28 and Doctrine and Covenants section 138 by the time you're done. And even more info can be found at mormon.org slash Easter if you scroll down on that page to the Holy Week section. Also, after the repeat, which is about an hour and five minutes long, if you're interested to hear more, you can stay tuned. I recorded this week my thoughts on resurrection as taught in the Book of Mormon and a couple of relevant conference talks. So here it is, without further ado, in its entirety, Season Zero, Episode One. Well, the Easter holiday is upon us, and as this Easter coincides as it usually does with General Conference, I thought it would be appropriate to take a week off from discussing Sunday School lessons and talk about the week that preceded the atonement and sacrifice and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. One of the fun parts about studying the scriptures in depth or studying more of the scriptures than you would normally, and any any of you who have read the Book of Mormon in a short amount of time will know what I'm talking about, it gives you more context for everything you're reading. And so I have really appreciated the chance I've had this week to study the final weeks and months and especially the final days of the life of Jesus to give it a little bit of context. Uh, and so I'm going to tell that this, I'm going to tell a little bit more about what happened to Jesus in his final weeks and in his final week and put it into context of what was happening in the weeks preceding. So during the, the first, one of the first episodes, one of the first events of Jesus's ministry was to go into the temple and to cleanse the temple. And what this meant was he overturned the tables of the money changers, and he said to them, my father's house is to be a place of worship. You've made it a den of thieves. We all know this story, and we uh, and if and if you've studied this a little bit, you, you know that actually Jesus did this twice, and it, they were very similar events. But, uh, so let's understand a little bit about more about what that meant. First of all, the temple was controlled by the Sanhedrin, the Council of Jewish Elders, and they also controlled membership in what was called the synagogue. And so they had the ability to excommunicate anyone who didn't toe the official line. For example, anyone who was found believing in Jesus once Jesus was in their disfavor could be put out of the synagogue. 
and they did this on a number of occasions. One man was healed from blindness, and they called upon him to renounce and say that Jesus was from the devil, and he said he didn't actually say whether Jesus was the Son of God or even a prophet. He said whether whether he's from the devil, I don't know, but what I know is that I was blind and now I see, and they asked him to condemn, repeatedly to condemn Jesus, and he said, why why could none of you do what he did? Why would I condemn a man who has plainly showed that he comes from God? And they thrust him out of the synagogue for simply bearing witness to the facts. So they, they weren't interested in finding out the truth about Jesus. What they were interested in was preserving their own power. And in the episode of the cleansing of the temple, it showed that Jesus threatened that power in a specific way. So the temple sacrifices were uh, was supposed to be a lamb. So a family would come for one of the great feasts, which might be the feast of Passover or the Day of Atonement, and they would buy a lamb, or if they didn't have money for a lamb, they would buy two doves. And these were the these were the sacrifices, and then they would give that to the priest. The priests would sacrifice it on their behalf. And because the teaching of the time was that normal money was profane, you had to use temple coin to buy these sacrifices. So everyone coming to Jerusalem would ascend these huge, enormous stone steps and come through an a series of archways, and depending on which direction they came from, they were all glorious entrances onto the Temple Mount. Herod the Great had seen to that. So the temple had been done in grand style, and the and the surrounding porches of the temple and all the platform the temple was built on, it was a it was a marvel of architecture. And here they are in this amazing place, and then they have to it's mandated. They have to buy these animals unless they brought one with them. And so in order to, to buy them in temple coin, they had to change their Roman money into just a, the, the coin that was only used on the Temple Mount. And what the Jewish elders were doing was they were playing with the exchange rate. And so they would have a the price for one of these animals would be much higher if you were to do the math backwards. By the time you figured out what you were paying in Roman coin, you could have you could have bought it much cheaper elsewhere. But they were mandated to buy it here. And in other words, they were abusing their position as leaders of the church to force people to pay them money to do what they had been commanded to do by God. And it's a little bit similar to organized crime. People have to have certain things. And organized crime, one of the things that organized crime does, they sell protection. And they walk around and say, hey, we'll protect you from any threats in the neighborhood when in reality they are the threat. And so the the priests are selling these animals and saying, well, we're, you know, we'll, we'll allow you to do the sacrifice. What they're really saying is, we're going to fleece you. You're going to be the, you're going to be the sacrificial lamb and and we're going to make a sacrifice out of you. Uh so that was one of Jesus's first acts and right away the chief priests and the the Jewish elders knew that they had someone that they had to worry about. So they were watching Jesus very carefully because he threatened not only the opinion. Jesus was very popular. He didn't he threatened their popular opinion, but he also threatened their business. And 
so they took him very seriously. And a few weeks before Jesus' death, he's in Jerusalem, and they send some people to him, and these people were new to Jesus, and they said, Jesus, tell us plainly. You, you've you kind of been dancing around the issue that you might be the Messiah, you might not be. Tell us plainly whether you're the Messiah. And Jesus gives a, a longish answer, but at the end he says, one of, part of his answer is, my works bear witness of me. He He gives a powerful testimony of what it means to be the Messiah, and then he says, I can do nothing unless the Father hath commanded me, and the Father and I are one. And immediately they take up stones. This for them is proof that he has blasphemed. They take up stones to kill him, and he says, you've seen the works that I've done, for which of these works will you stone me? And they don't have an answer, but they still they still reach out for him to kill him, to take him to, to where they can stone him to death. And uh, through a means that we don't read about in the scriptures, he... He walks through the midst of them and, and goes his way. So they don't have power to take hold of him before his time. Nevertheless, at this point, they feel like they have grounds to kill Jesus. And it has long been in their hearts that they would kill Jesus. In fact, Caiaphas, the chief priest, says to the rest of the council, he says, and, and we, can, we can guess that uh, one of Jesus' converts on the council, probably a man named Nicodemus, is uh, the reason that we know that this happened. But Caiaphas says to the council, you all know nothing. Is it better that the entire nation should should perish in unbelief or that one man should die for the nation? And it's interesting, it's it's prophetic, the words that he said. What he meant was the Romans, if, if this man threatens our power enough, the Romans are going to, if he stirs up the people enough, then the Romans are going to clamp down on us hard. So what we have to do is preserve the status quo, and we're going to do that by killing Jesus. He's going to die. In this way, he's going to die for the nation. Um, and obviously, he didn't know how true the words that he was speaking were. In any case, at that point, they were by already then, they were looking to take Jesus and kill him. So Jesus thought it best to get out of town, not necessarily because he was afraid of their power over him, but because... The, if they're working to kill him, then it puts a hamper on anything that he can accomplish by teaching. And he is away from Jerusalem for a certain amount of time, but then he hears about Lazarus, a good uh, the brother of Mary and Martha, two good friends of his, and Lazarus himself, obviously a good friend of Jesus. And so Lazarus has died, or Jesus already knows, but he receives word that Lazarus has died. And... He travels back to Jerusalem, or uh, Bethany, which is just a few miles east of Jerusalem, and brings Lazarus back from the dead. So, in short order, we have two events. One is Jesus gives the Jewish elders a pretext to kill him, to execute him for blasphemy. And then, shortly thereafter, he brings Lazarus back from the dead, which raises his profile, which increases the number of believers and followers he has and increases their frenzy, their fervor, their religious zeal. And it was a common belief about Jesus among those people that he was going to free them from the Romans. Even the disciples didn't quite understand the true nature of Jesus's mission to earth. In any case, and there there are doubtless some people who knew exactly what to believe, but we don't know how numerous these people were. 
And we also know there were quite a number of people who had the wrong idea about the nature of Jesus's calling. So after raising Lazarus from the dead, I mean, this raises the, the, to a fever pitch, the panic of the Sanhedrin. But Jesus again leaves town. However, it was a commandment for faithful Jews to, if you were able, to come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of the Passover. So Jesus, being a faithful Jew, made this journey, even though his disciples and his friends, they counseled him not to go. They said, if you go back to Jerusalem this soon after all this stuff has been going on, they're going to get you. And we can guess, It's in my mind, it seems pretty likely that Judas was tired of being afraid all the time that uh, he's he's siding with a man who is a criminal. He's worried, is this going to rub off on me when Jesus's earthly kingdom, when his following finally collapses? What's going to happen to all of his followers? We're going to be scattered like cockroaches when the lights turn on. We're all dead. So we're going to get stepped on. And he decides to take his fate into his own hands and as much as much good as he's seen Jesus do and as much love as Jesus has shown him his fear gets the better of him this is my interpretation of what drove him and they return uh, and it was a it was a proclamation they returned to Jerusalem and the proclamation existed at that time anybody knowing where Jesus was you have you are compelled to let us know and that we may come arrest him now there Jesus made no secret about his his whereabouts. So the first the first day of Holy Week, here we are talking about Holy Week. And the first day is Palm what's called Palm Sunday. And it's called this because Jesus takes the opportunity on Palm Sunday to fulfill a notable prophecy about the Messiah. And this prophecy is found in the second to last book of the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9. Here's the verse. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly, and riding upon an ass and upon a colt the foal of an ass. And it seems like lowly and colt the foal of an ass go together, but in fact, they are contrasted because riding into town on a donkey with clothes strewn about under the donkey, is the act of a king. It was, it was the way that Jewish kings returned victorious from battle. So it was, a, it was a way to greatly honor someone. It was the greatest way that they knew how. And to wave palms. So all of these things were Jewish traditions to honor the greatest person in the country at the greatest time of his achievements. And this is the... Because they... Because Jesus' followers loved him so much and esteemed him so greatly, when they heard he was coming back into town, and it was mostly the story of the resurrection or the, the returning to life of Lazarus that had caused this amount of enthusiasm for Jesus, because it happened in front of so many witnesses. Everyone knew that Lazarus was dead. He was dead for four days. It had been witnessed by plenty of people, both friendly and unfriendly toward Jesus. It could not be denied that Lazarus was dead. And then there he was in Bethany within easy walking distance of anyone in Jerusalem to go see him alive. And so it was plain for anybody who cared to find out 
that Jesus had done an actual miracle. And this is why they were so excited to have Jesus come back. They thought maybe this is now, this is the time. And Jesus sent his disciples to get this donkey for him to ride into town on. And uh, that was obviously on his part, that was an intentional fulfillment of prophecy. But we have in the scriptures that the disciples didn't quite realize the significance of it until after Jesus was dead. And then they were reminded that he, that he fulfilled this prophecy, and that's when they wrote it down. So that's Palm Sunday. Jesus has his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Interestingly, one of my favorite memories from my time in Jerusalem, I was in the BYU Jerusalem Center, and I happened to be in an Isaiah class at the time, but the classes, the Jerusalem Center is on the east of the old city, so it's on one of the slopes of the Mount of Olives, and it there's a there's a dip in between East Jerusalem and the old city of Jerusalem with the Valley of Kidron in between. And you can look over to the west and see Jerusalem there, and the Dome of the Rock is very notable on the Jerusalem skyline, it, and it's on the exact spot where the temple used to be, or it occupies part of that ground. And in front of, or just to the east of, the Dome of the Rock is a gate. Now, the, the walls around Jerusalem are, were built by the Turks, and so in the 1400s or 1500s. And so these aren't the same walls that surrounded Jerusalem at the time of Jesus. Nevertheless, there's, an, there's a legend that a crusader in the, I believe in the 10th or 11th century was poking around, and that has long been a Muslim graveyard uh, to the east of the Temple Mount because the prophecy is that that is the way the Messiah will enter. And so they, the Muslims in the area, to, to keep anyone from being able to claim this land, have buried their, their bodies there so that it becomes holy ground to them. And there was a, there was a Templar uh, poking around the ground, and he falls through a hole in the ground, and he finds another gate directly below what's currently called the Golden Gate, the Sealed Gate of the Temple Mount. And on all the Temple Mount, that gate is actually the, the most heavily guarded, and it's guarded by Muslim guards. It's not often in the old city of Jerusalem that Muslims have weapons. Uh, it's, it's normally the, the Jewish IDF, or there are, there are also Muslims in the, in the Israeli Defense Force, but in large part, they're Jewish soldiers, and they surround the Temple Mount and provide security. But over that particular part of the Temple Mount, there are Muslim guards, and it's right by that gate. It's right on the inside of the gate, and nobody can come in or out that way. There's no entrance on that side of the Temple Mount. They're, they're solely guarding. It, it's, in, it's very interesting. They're solely guarding against the return of the Messiah, or against the coming of the Messiah, as the Jews believe, or the return of the Messiah, as the Christians believe. And they believe by sealing this gate and guarding it that they're going to keep him out. Or, or I, I suppose a, a Muslim would say that they're going to keep anyone from faking the return and causing a spectacle that could be later claimed that it was the return or the first coming of the Messiah. So it's a very interesting place, and it's clearly visible from the Jerusalem Center, and our, my Isaiah teacher pointed over, and and we were talking about a particular scripture in Isaiah, which led us to this scripture in Zechariah, Zechariah 9.9. And if you're familiar with 
the word gospel, the meaning of the word gospel, it means good tidings. There are a couple of verses in Isaiah where Isaiah says uh, two things. One is, the behold, you have good tidings. And then at the end of the verse, he says, behold your God. Or at the end of the other verse, he says, thy God reigneth. So he talks about what the good, he talks about the the phrase good tidings at the beginning of each verse, and then at the end of the verse, you learn what the good tidings are. And that's why this verse is closely related to those, because the Zechariah says to Israel, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. So this is another example of the good tidings. This is the gospel. This is the good news. Behold, thy king, or thy God reigneth. That's the good news of the whole scriptures, is that God is real, and he's among us, and he cares about us, he loves us, he's here with us. So this this is Jesus literally fulfilling this prophecy, thy king cometh unto thee, Jerusalem. And that is, that is the significance of the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. So f- far from being uh, afraid of what the Sanhedrin might do to him and, and worrying about their threats, they've threatened to take away his life. They've already picked up stones in his presence to kill him in a very brutal and painful way. And instead of coming quietly back into the city, first first Jesus comes on the Saturday before Palm Sunday. He spends the day in Bethany, and it becomes well known that he's there with Lazarus. So you can come, if you want to come from Jerusalem, you can come see Jesus and Lazarus. And so a lot of people come out the day before, and then everyone knows that Jesus is in the city, and the next day is when he does the triumphal entry. Let's talk a little bit about the day, Sunday. So this happens on Sunday. The day before that would have been Jesus' Sabbath. And Jews observed the Sabbath on Saturday. And uh, my mission language was Portuguese. And it's interesting that in Portuguese and most Latin languages, the word for Saturday, sabado, is the same as Sabbath. So I had this experience where I was teaching a family the same time as they're being taught by the Seventh-day Adventists. And so the question came up, why do you believe, aren't, aren't you disobeying one of the Ten Commandments by not keeping the Sabbath day holy, the Saturday holy? In Portuguese, the same thing. Observe the Saturday to keep it holy. So when they left, the, the mother who was beginning to believe what we were teaching asked me, she said, why, why do you believe that? And, uh, Oh, no, I'm sorry. This was before they left. So here we are. Here I am in, in front of uh, two other missionaries from another church. And luckily for me, or uh, I believe it was the Spirit guiding me, but I had recently been reading uh, a talk by Russell M. Nelson, who was many years from being our prophet as he is today. But um, he talked about how God had done something so notable on the day he was resurrected on Easter Sunday by rising from the dead, that it overshadowed even the creation of the world. He had created us anew spiritually. And if you consider how important the creation of the world was to Jews, it's, it's commemorated once every week. And an entire day is taken off from all work there's a greater sacrifice with the Sabbath, and in fact, they were going to kill Jesus many times. They threatened to kill him over 
Sabbath, breaking the Sabbath or failure to observe the Sabbath. And um, you'll, you'll remember several of those stories. And so one of the most important commandments to the Jews, and it was so important what Jesus did, that Christians began, and it's we have evidence of this in Acts chapter 20, they began observing the day of the Lord on the first day of the week rather than the seventh. And so they still worship God one day a week, but rather than commemorate the, and we can presume, although we don't have a record of it, we can presume they began doing this by revelation. But they began commemorating the resurrection of Jesus rather than the creation of the world. That's how important an event that was. So it was a holy, it wasn't a holy day to all the Jews, but it was this Palm Sunday was destined to be a holy day. The following day, Monday, Jesus goes again and cleanses the temple. So once again, he doesn't, he doesn't shun the public eye. He goes right where the conflict is the strongest. And he can't, and it's because he can't stay away. His father's house is being profaned, and he can't sit idly by. And this is where Jesus shows probably one of the most important qualities that any of us can have, and that is courage. He shows his courage to do what he knows must be done in spite of personal danger to himself, in spite of how unpopular it is with those who are in power, and how many people it's going to upset. He knows that something is wrong and it has to be put right, and he puts himself in danger to do it. He cleanses the temple again, and you know, you can tell by the way that people react. Here he is overturning all of these, all of these money tables. If this was a legitimate trade, there would have been people, everybody would have banded together and they would have held his arms behind him and said, what are you doing, you crazy man? Why are you a terrorist? And I use that word on purpose. Why are you terrorizing the temple like a terrorist? And I use that word because later on, Jesus is, the, the crowd is given the option to release either Jesus or a true terrorist whose name is Barabbas. And they choose Barabbas. And Jesus has been, if, if, if what he had been doing were countering people who were actually serving the public by selling them their um, religious animals at a good price, then everyone would have been upset. But even the people behind the tables, they were getting out of the way and there were, Jesus was clearly outnumbered and yet he was easily able to go in and do this by himself. It's because people recognize that his indignation, and it's often called righteous indignation rather than anger, his indignation was indeed righteous. He had right on his side and Jesus showed us a perfect example of courage. Uh, We talked earlier about the Ten Commandments, how important the Jews found keeping the Sabbath day holy. And I think it's worth mentioning one of the other commandments that, uh, and this is a commandment that is often misunderstood. Uh, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for God shall not hold blameless, or as it's also translated, forgive, he who taketh his name in vain. Of all the Ten Commandments, there are some awful commandments and or some awful sins that the commandments proscribe, and one of those is murder. Thou shalt not murder. That's the, that's the real way to translate, thou shalt not kill. But it doesn't say after thou shalt not murder, 
that the Lord will not forgive the person who murders. So isn't that interesting that God would say, I'm not going to forgive you. I, I, I may forgive you, or it's left unclear whether I forgive, whether I will forgive you or not if you murder. But if you take my name in vain, then I will not forgive you. How is that possible? Well, again, this is a word that has a number of meanings. And one of those meanings, the word take, thou shalt not take my name in vain. One of those meanings is carry. And uh, Dennis Prager has actually written a book on the, the Ten Commandments. In that book, he talks about how those who carry the name of God are those who are in religious authority or those who claim to be acting in the name of God. You're carrying, when you when you do something that you claim and you believe is holy, then you are carrying the name of God. So this is what God is commanding. He says, you shall not carry my name in vain, which means you cannot do evil when you are acting in my name. Think about... Uh, a terrorist, uh, an Islamist terrorist, somebody who believes that by killing innocent people, they are doing God's will. Think about how many atheists he, each person, each terrorist creates. Each person who says, well, God couldn't possibly want this man to have acted the way he did, and therefore God is not real. For an analogy, think about uh, think about how awful it is for people when the police are corrupt. So if you have a corrupt police officer who's taking bribes and you call the police for relief, for safety, for rescue, from danger, and instead when the police arrive, it turns out they're on the side of the bad guys, right? So you, you literally have nowhere to go. There is no safety for you. And that, to me, that is a perfect example of what it means when somebody carries the name of God in vain. You have a priest, or you have an imam, or you have a rabbi who is supposed to be teaching the right things and doing the right things. And when they're doing something, especially when they're doing it in the name of God, if they are teaching evil and saying it's in the name of God, they're making it impossible for anyone to find spiritual safety. They're making it impossible to believe in God to the extent that they are misrepresenting the way that God is, the nature of God. They're making it impossible to believe in him. As Joseph Smith said, the first requirement for faith is to have an accurate understanding of the attributes of God. Your faith is those things which you cannot see which are true. So someone who carries the name of God in vain is making it impossible to believe. They're creating atheists. And that's what Jesus was doing when he cleansed the temple. He was countering this terrible evil that was being done in the name of God. The people who were attending the temple, they had no other option. They had to go through these money changers, and they were being they were being victimized at the very moment they were obeying the commandments of God. So it's a worse evil when you, it's a worse evil than killing someone if you make it impossible for them to believe in God because you've killed their spirit. And Jesus was rescuing everyone from this evil when he cleansed the temple. 
That's Monday. So that's Sunday, Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. Monday, he cleanses the temple. And he did and he did a few other things. We'll talk about the main events. Uh, on Tuesday, and it, it actually says in one of these scriptures, it says that Jesus was in the temple daily teaching. But we have uh, an account that we believe, it does talk about how he comes and goes in the morning and night. And so we believe that all of these things happen on Tuesday, but he teaches several parables. And there's the parable of the, the Lord of the vineyard who has these uh, servants who, the, these parables are all meant to, to condemn the evil Sanhedrin, the evil Jews, the evil religious establishment. And he's saying, uh, you've, you've, you've carried the name of God in vain, basically. He says that there was a Lord of a vineyard. He hired a bunch of servants, and the servants mistreat all of his messengers. You know, he has to go away for a season, but he sends messengers to say how his vineyard should be looked after. And they mistreat them and kill them. And finally, he says, well, they won't mistreat my son. So he sends the son there, and they say to themselves, well, here is the heir. Let us kill him and hide his body, and we can we can have the inheritance to ourselves. And so they kill him. So then he asked them, what is the Lord of the vineyard going to do when he comes and finds these wicked men have done this thing? And the, and the Pharisees and the, the chief priests, they not, and the scribes not realizing that Jesus has been talking about them until afterwards, they say, Oh, he's going to come back and he's going to kill him. He's going to set thing right, things right. And then Jesus says, therefore, uh, the, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they will enter heaven more easily than you. And he tells an, another few parables to emphasize this point. The He asked the question, okay, there's a man who sends one son out to, he asked both sons to work, and one says, okay, I'll do it, and doesn't, and one says, no, I won't do it, and does. Which one of them did the will of him that sent him? And they say, well, the second one. And he says, again, these, these sinners are going to get into heaven more easily than you. And he, and he makes another analogy to a wedding feast. And he pronounces woes upon them. Woe unto you, scribe and, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And there are tons of things that he says. And he just, and, and by the end of this talk, it says, neither durst any man after that point ask him any question and ask him anything. So he had confounded them so thoroughly that they were afraid to even talk to them, talk to him. Uh, and the scribes and Pharisees, they actually sent people to Jesus that he didn't know. And they said, and they gave him flattering words. Oh, good master. You always know the way that, you know, the truth of the situation. And you would never care about what one man thought over another. You would not be a respecter of person. So let me ask you this question. They try to come at him by sneaking, right? And that's when they ask him the question about who should we pay taxes to Caesar? And he says, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's and unto God that which is God's. So he's way too clever for him in every turn. And finally, nobody who is against Jesus will dare to talk to him at all because he just makes them look foolish and with, with the truth. So on that's Tuesday. And on Wednesday, we don't have... Oh, and on Tuesday night, so Jesus comes out of Jerusalem and walking back to Bethany. So every day he's going across this valley that separates the Mount of Olives from the Temple Mount. And crossing between the Mount of Olives, one of the passes in the Mount of Olives, and going to Bethany, which is on the other side of the Mount of Olives. And I've actually made that journey by foot. It's not very far. And uh, today, the wall that separates East Jerusalem and the West Bank, 
from the nation of Israel uh, actually cuts through that journey. So you can't walk it on foot anymore. And it's a sad thing. But uh, when I was a student at the Jerusalem Center on Easter Sunday, we were allowed to show up there and they gave us a palm frond and we all walked from Bethany to the easternmost gate in Jerusalem that's open, which is today is St. Stephen's Gate. It was very fun. What a wonderful memory. And uh, But it's not a far walk. So Jesus says he's, and this is a famous lament of Jesus as he's walking across the Mount of Olives. He sits there and says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered you as a hen gathereth her chicks and other laments like this, but you would not. So he mourns for Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives. Of Wednesday of Holy Week, we don't have a record in the scriptures exactly what happened. But as I said earlier, there is the saying that he was teaching daily in the temple. And I imagine he was also attending the temple to the extent that he was able. I don't know that Jesus was recognized as a, as a priest or a Levite. And we might consider, as the, the Jews of that time had what we would call in the LDS church today, we, we would call the Aaronic priesthood. We might consider the priests, and this was a hereditary office, as being uh, a, a modern-day Aaronic priesthood priest. And the Levites were the teachers and the deacons, so they cared for the physical uh, needs of the, of the temple. They moved the sacrifices around, and the priests actually performed the sacrifices and did all the holy duties. And the high priest was actually a man who might be called the today the bishop's assistant, right? He didn't have the Melchizedek priesthood. But the high priest was the one person allowed to go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement and say the name of God aloud. Otherwise, that name was not to be spoken. And interesting, that was the man who most who worked the hardest to put Jesus to death. So, And the name that they would say was Jehovah, the, the name of Jesus himself, the, the, his pre-mortal name. So... He was the one person who was authorized to speak that name, and he worked the hardest to kill Jesus. That was why Jesus felt it was justified and why he felt compelled to overturn these tables of the money changers, is because Caiaphas was the person who was benefiting the most from this from this money-making scheme, and he was carrying the name of God in vain. Literally, this this name that only he could say. He was carrying it in vain and speaking it in vain. So I imagine Jesus visited the temple. He was teaching in the porches surrounding it, but did he have any temple authority? Was he able to go perform any ordinances? I don't know. That was the one place on earth where uh, God's presence was authorized. And I, I shouldn't say the one place on earth, but it was it was the holiest place on earth. It was it was a dedicated temple, and it was recognized by God as uh, a sanctioned place for His ordinances to be performed. And I know that because after Jesus's death, the veil of the temple was rent. In other words, that was God's, and this is in uh, Jesus the Christ. That was God's signal that He had finally after centuries and centuries of apostasies, he had finally revoked the Jews' authority to perform these temple rites, and he no longer recognized the temple as an authorized place, as, as a 
as having his sanction. It was it was his symbol that he was saying Israel has apostatized that the veil of the temple spontaneously tore into and exposed everything that was inside, which it was death to look upon before that time. In fact, the the high priest would wear a rope about his waist whenever he went into it because if God struck him dead, no one else could go in there to get him. So the only way they could get him out was to pull the to the pull him out by the rope around his waist because no one would risk the anger of God by going in an unauthorized way into the Holy of Holies. So for that veil to be rent was a, was a powerful symbol that he had taken the authority of the way from the earth, from the earthly representatives of Judaism. All right. On Thursday. Now this is, uh, I think at this point I should mention that, uh, the Jews, their days ended at sundown. So they didn't go midnight to midnight the way we do. They went sundown to sundown. So Thursday was involved in a preparation for a Passover meal, and they would have actually considered everything that happened after the beginning of that meal to be Friday. But we can think of it as Thursday by our reckoning until midnight. We don't know exactly when midnight would have occurred, but Jesus met with his disciples. He sent them to prepare and he told them, go to this certain place and there will be somebody there waiting for you. And as soon as you say these particular words, they will prepare, they will show you a room where we can have our Passover feast. And he said something similar to his disciples on Palm Sunday. He said, go to this particular place and there will be uh, two donkeys there, untie them. And when they, when someone asks you what's going on, say, the Lord hath needed them. And that's the way it happened. And I'm not sure... Uh, it might have been miraculous, uh, a miracle that Jesus knew these things and saw the future, but it also might have been that Jesus did things the way we would do them, which is he took an interest in where he was going to be and what he was going to be doing, and he cared about how he was going to be doing the triumphal entry. And so he made arrangements without his disciples knowing. They didn't need to know everything that he was involved in. I believe he probably did as many things as he needed to in a non-miraculous way. Or he may this may have been a miracle, we don't know. But in any case, uh, Peter and John went across the city and found the man that Jesus had described, and he immediately showed them to that upper room. And so this, this is an event that's been depicted many times in painting and film, and Jesus has a, a Last Supper with his disciples, and one of the first things he does is he washes their feet and it should be noted that what Jesus is performing on the disciples is a is a priesthood ordinance, and one of the reasons why things uh, why why Judas's sin was so serious is because this is a very sacred ordinance that Jesus is performing for him. And once it's happened to him, if you can uh, if you can read this in the in the Doctrine and Covenants section one thirty two, it talks about how. Let him, it shall be spoken, you know, once his calling and election is made sure, and this is kind of the symbol of that, it shall be spoken, let him do no, commit no sin whereby he sheds innocent blood. And if he does, then he's delivered up to the buffetings of hell. This is how you become a a son of perdition. And unfortunately for Judas, he waited until after he had 
received this ordinance, and then he still committed the sin of shedding innocent blood, the most innocent blood. But Jesus, it's also a symbol of the fact that Jesus is the lowliest of all. And I mentioned early, uh, in one of our early episodes, how important the doctrine is of the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Or as Jesus put it in one of the chapters describing this week, whoso abaseth himself shall be exalted, and whoso exalteth himself shall be humbled. And Jesus took every opportunity to humble himself, to serve the disciples, to say, and he even taught them, whoso would be greatest among you, let him be their servant. And this is what he does for them. And and Peter says, no, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, oh, yes, I am. And if I don't, you have no place with me. And Peter was mollified by that and let it, let it happen, maybe in a confused way. Didn't quite understand that the, the nature of the kingdom of God is exactly the opposite of the nature of things on earth. That if you really want to be great there, you will not care about your own glory. God will receive all of the glory. That is what Jesus has taught with throughout his existence, was that you give the glory to God, and that is the way you become great. And Peter was still learning that. Jesus then institutes the sacrament. And it's worth noting that the, the Old Testament, as we call it, is a covenant. And the, the Passover was the meal that symbolized that covenant. And the covenant was that you'll be, that you'll be passed over. And we're going to talk a lot about this. Uh, next week's Sunday School lesson is the Exodus, which includes the original Passover, which is commemorated. In fact, in a lot of languages, including Portuguese, the word for Passover and Easter are the same because they happen around the same time. But uh, the the Passover was the meal that commemorated the Old Testament, the Testament of um, serve God in this earthly way and a, a way of formal observances, the law of Moses, and God will pass over you and you will be spared the worst of his consequences of disobedience, which is death. And Jesus substitutes that. And so when we read the New Testament, the story of the new covenant, this is that new covenant, the the covenant of the sacrament that is instituted at the Last Supper. He's saying, this take and do and drink this and eat this in remembrance of me, in remembrance of my sacrifice. So instead of remembering the destroying angel passing over the children of Israel, now the call is remember the Savior who died for you. Again, instead of celebrating and commemorating each week the creation of the world, there's something so much more significant that has happened that it's worth changing the very day on which we worship. And Jesus is saying, by instituting the sacrament, one of our holiest feasts, it's worth changing the way we observe it. And then they do something that I personally love, and we there's plenty of symbolism in the sacrament. You can even see the, the burial clothes of Christ symbolized in the way that there's a 
there's a, a sheet, a white sheet or a white piece of lace put over the bread and water. And as they're blessed, it's, it's pulled back. And uh, that's a wonderful symbol. But before they leave the room, this upper room, they sing a hymn. And I don't think too many Latter-day Saints think every week about the fact that before Jesus performed the atonement, he sang a hymn with his disciples. When we sing the sacrament hymn every week, that is actually also one of the symbols of the atonement. We're, we're commemorating the hymn that Jesus sang with his disciples. So don't let your voices be silent on that hymn. As God said in in Doctrine and Covenants section 25, the song of the righteous is a prayer unto me, and it shall be answered with a blessing upon their heads. So don't forfeit your opportunity to receive that blessing. Sing enthusiastically, if reverently, every time there's a sacrament hymn especially, but any hymn. There, those hymns are symbols of part of Jesus' atonement as well. So Thursday night, we're still after this in the late hours of Thursday night after this meal, Jesus and some of his disciples, Judas has already left to to tell. Now, what Judas was going to do, the service that he was going to provide the Sanhedrin was, he was going to tell them where Jesus was at a time when they could come get him without the public being around, because they, they had plenty of opportunity to grab him in the days leading up to this, but they were afraid. Everyone loved Jesus so much. So Judas shows them, he, he knows that, that Jesus is heading for the Garden of Gethsemane, a place that he loves to pray, and is surrounded by these ancient olive trees. And even today there are groves of olive trees, probably because people are trying to commemorate this great event. And so they leave the olive trees growing there. Um, and it's, it's on the lower slope of the Mount of Olives, right near the, the valley of Kidron or right dead smack in the middle of the Valley of Kidron. And uh, Jesus retires there. And I I think at this point, what I want to do is I want to read some of the words of uh, a a mentor of mine, a dear friend, Matt Sansom, who uh, gave his mission farewell. He and his wife are going to be serving a mission for a year and a half in California And he gave a wonderful sacrament meeting talk last Sunday, and I asked him if I could have a copy of it and if I could read parts of it um, in my podcast. And so he gave me this copy, and I'm reading this with his permission. So I'll I'll interject from time to time with, with some comments, but hopefully you'll be able to tell where I'm quoting and where I'm not. Uh, here's part of Matt Sansom's talk. Christ's Christ's suffering in Gethsemane and a kiss of betrayal by Judas Iscariot put in motion the most significant events in human history. After his betrayal, Christ was taken to the chief priest Caiaphas, where he was blindfolded and smacked in the face with the bare hands of the elders and the chief priest himself. He was taken to Pilate, the Roman governor, who found no fault in Jesus. So he sent him to the Jewish king Herod. Herod made a mockery of him, arraying him in a gorgeous purple robe and putting a crown of thorns upon his head. He was hit in the face and head with a reed and sent back to Pilate. It is hard to imagine the pain Jesus felt as the thorns entered his skin and pressed into his skull and as his face and head were being whipped. I should mention at this time that uh, while 
Jesus was in front of Caiaphas, they slapped him, they put a bag over his head and slapped him in the face and spit on him. And they said, if you're a prophet, then prophesy who it was that smote thee. Um, just a side note. Uh, it is hard to imagine the pain Jesus felt as the thorns entered his skin and pressed into his skull and as his face and head were being whipped. Pilate took Jesus and presented him before the chief priest and the people, saying, Behold the man. Then the people called out, Crucify him. This, the people chose to release Barabbas, a thief and a murderer, rather than the innocent Jesus Christ. And it's interesting, Barabbas is actually Bar means son of and Abba means father. So the name Barabbas means son of the father. And the man is literally a symbol of what you can attain on the earth. He was he was the people that that everyone expected Jesus to be. He was fighting. He was a terrorist, meaning he was fighting in violent ways against the oppression of Rome, and he didn't care who he hurt. And the people would rather have him, and the chief priests stacked the crowd, doubtless, because there are plenty of people who would have called for Jesus to be released. But they chose to release Barabbas, and they even said things to Pilate to compel Pilate, like, if you don't release him, we'll tell Rome that you are mistreating us, and upon our heads be the sin if you release the wrong person. So just awful, horrible things that they, I'm sure, have regretted in eternity saying. Uh, back to the talk. The people chose to release Barabbas, a thief and a murderer, rather than the innocent Jesus Christ. Christ did indeed descend below all things. Barabbas was released, and then Pilate had more pain inflicted upon Christ, as he sent him to be scourged. Scourging consisted of a leather whip with bone fragments and other hard objects attached to it. When this whip was employed, it caused deep cuts in the flesh and removed chunks of flesh from the Savior's body. Again, it is hard to imagine the pain the Savior felt. After the scourging, he was sent to be crucified. His body was in pain and distress, yet he had to bear his own cross as he made his way to Golgotha. Nails were pounded into his hands, wrists, and feet, and he was hung between two common thieves. At the request of Pilate, an inscription was put on the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Christ was not filled with hate for the injustice he had, injustice he had received. Rather, he was filled with love and compassion and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. This lasted, uh, this was this was now Friday. So in the early hours of Friday, Jesus was undergoing these trials. And if you want to understand more about these trials, I recommend reading these chapters, the, the relevant chapters in Jesus the Christ. It talks about how many ways in which these trials were illegal. There was absolutely nothing legal about the way evidence was given, the time they were held, the number of people that were there. The trials were illegal from start to finish, according to Jewish law, Roman law, and every law involved. Uh, That's just a side note. It's so fascinating. Uh, And the Jews didn't have the authority to condemn anyone to death. All they could do is ask the Romans to do it. So they condemned Jesus to death, and then they sent him to the Romans, and they changed the charge. So at first they were, they condemned him to death for blasphemy. But then when they sent him to Pilate, they said he made himself the king of the Jews. And that's why Pilate said, art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. (laughs) 
here in the talk, it says, in the ninth hour of his crucifixion. But uh, I should clarify that. And the ninth hour means about about 3 p.m. And it was in the sixth hour of his crucifixion. So Jesus hung on the cross for roughly six hours. He was crucified probably around 9 a.m. The prophecy was that Jesus, that no bone of his would be broken. So before the sun could set and the Sabbath would come in, it was Jewish law that nobody would be hanging on a cross during the Sabbath. And so they, if you had been crucified any other day of the week, they would just let you hang there for days until you died. But if you were crucified on a Friday, they would come around before sunset and they would take a big maul which is a stick with a weight on the end of it, and they would break your legs, and the shock of it was so great that it would often kill somebody right away. But because of this prophecy, Jesus yielded up the ghost. Once his, once his suffering was complete, he yielded up the ghost, and when they came around to break his legs, they found him already dead. So I'll continue. In the ninth hour of his crucifixion, Jesus said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit, and he died. To make sure of his death, a Roman soldier thrust a spear into his side. For Christ, there was no justice and mercy. He was falsely accused, tortured, and killed. Yet because of his sacrifice through him, there is justice and mercy for us. A good man named Joseph of Arimathea took the body of Christ, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in his personal sepulcher. His sepulcher was hewn in stone and had never been used before. A large stone was rolled over the entrance of the sepulcher. On the third day after his death, Mary Magdalene came to the sepulcher in the early morning and found the stone removed and the tomb empty. Mary ran to tell Peter and John. They, in turn, ran to the sepulcher to see for themselves. What they saw were the linens which had been wrapped around the body of Christ, but his body was not there. Peter and John went home, but Mary stayed. In St. John chapter 20, verse 11 to 17, we read, But Mary stood without at the sepulcher, weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher, and seeth two angels in white, sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing, and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou hast borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus saith unto her, Mary. She turned herself and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. Mary did indeed tell the apostles of her experience with the resurrected Christ. As they were gathered, they too saw him, for he stood in the midst of them. So Jesus lay in the tomb. He, his death happened before sunset Friday, and he lay in the tomb the, entire of, the entirety of Saturday. So when we talk about Jesus being in the tomb for three days, what it means is part of Friday, part, all of Saturday, and part of Sunday. Those are the three days. And at, from an LDS perspective, we read in section 138 of the Doctrine and Covenants that Jesus was using this time very efficiently while he was dead, while he was in the grave, and his body was sealed, and Herod even put a, or uh, Pilate even put a seal over the, the tombstone 
To keep anyone from messing with the body, Jesus was organizing the missionary work in the world of spirits. And all the righteous spirits who had died up until that point were waiting for him. And with with great anxiety and with great anticipation, the day when their, they, they saw their separation from their bodies as a, as a form of prison. And so when Jesus came, he taught them how to teach others to believe in him. And we also read in the scriptures that once Jesus was resurrected, that the saints, the graves of many saints opened up and they were resurrected and appeared to many. So Jesus, that was the beginning of the first resurrection, which is still going on. And uh, it's still called the morning of the first resurrection. So the, the righteous can be resurrected. And in fact, we read in the Doctrine and Covenants that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have entered into their exaltations. They've received their resurrections. So the righteous can be resurrected at any time Jesus chooses and finds it convenient for his will and the Father's will. But the wicked have to wait until the day of judgment. I want to finish this. uh, And then obviously Sunday, Easter Sunday, the first Easter was the day of the resurrection of Jesus. And I want to finish this lesson talking about one of my favorite scriptural accounts, which is the story of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And this is two, two men. We don't know whether they were apostles or not, but they are talking together and they're discussing the fact that Jesus is dead and Jesus appears to them and they don't know it's him. And they have a journey to undertake to Emmaus we, and it's about seven miles away from Jerusalem. So they're walking together and, and Jesus says, what is this talk you're having together as you walk and are sad? And they said, have you, are you a stranger? Have you not heard of these, you know, Jesus of Nazareth? He was killed on Friday and we thought that it would have been he that would have redeemed Israel. And also he, he prophesied that he would rise from the dead. And this is the third day since all these things have happened. And here's the, for me, the, the significant part. Jesus is risen. He has a living body. He's right in front of them. Later on, when he shows himself to the disciples, he shows the marks in his hands and feet and the hole in his side. And he says, see these things, you see me. But this is earlier. This is before he appears to all of his assembled apostles. And he says to these two disciples, O fools and slow of heart to believe. This is, we find this account in Luke chapter 24. And beginning... At Moses and all the scriptures, he unfolded to them the scriptures concerning himself. So to me, this has always spoken so powerfully that Jesus has the opportunity to show the most powerful evidence there is, which is physical evidence. And he doesn't do it. Instead, he goes to the scriptures. And they finish their walk and they say, hey, turn in with us and, you know, break bread with us. And so he breaks bread. They blessed it. And... When he blesses the bread and hands it to them, then he's, it's revealed to them that this is Jesus, and then he vanishes from their sight. And then they say to themselves something so interesting. They say, did not, they don't say, oh, we saw Jesus. He's alive because we saw him. They say to each other, did not our hearts burn within us as he walked with us along the way? 
and as he opened to us the scriptures. And I believe Jesus did bore testimony of himself, and he, he helped these disciples to see what he helped them to see for this reason, so that we, when we read this story, would know that the most important way we can know the truth about Jesus is not to see the physical evidence of his resurrection, to see the marks in his hands. Obviously, what a wonderful privilege that would be. But the most important way, and the way that he chose to do it, was to open to them the scriptures and to explain to them the scriptures concerning himself. And we have those scriptures today. Everything that Jesus explained to them would have been found in the Old Testament. But we don't have to limit ourselves to the Old Testament. We also have the Book of Mormon, which is so much plainer in its prophecies of Jesus Christ. We have the scriptures, and we can say to each other as well, did not our hearts burn within us as he walked with us along the way and as he opened to us the scriptures? So, in closing, I would just say, this Easter, as we prepare to sustain a new prophet and new apostles, and as we prepare this this weekend to receive the word of our general authorities and general officers of the church and, and have the spirit bear witness to us. Let's let that, let's let that, let's let our hearts burning within us give us the faith we need to believe that Christ is our savior and that he is risen. And let us also let the example of Jesus give us the courage to do what must be done the way he did the kind of courage that he had. And then let's let the sacrifice of Jesus give us hope that the courage and the faith will all be worth it. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Well, thank you everyone for sticking around after the episode. Uh, and I, I want to keep this part short and sweet since you've already been listening a long time, but this is part of a larger presentation that I do about the fall of Adam and Eve and the nature of what it is in comparison with the atonement. But Alma's, Alma chapters 40 through 42 are a rich resource in the doctrine of the resurrection. It's where you can find ideas that aren't found anywhere in the Bible, and that's because, as Alma says, he inquired diligently of God in order to find out what happened to the soul between the time of death and the time of resurrection. And and then it was made known to him by an angel exactly, maybe not exactly because he says there are still some uncertainties, but uh, some things he knows exactly what happens and he, and he knows exactly the nature of the resurrection, what it looks like. And then he spends a lot of time, so this is what, where we're going to spend our time today. We're going to start actually at the end here in chapter 42. In verse 5 and verse 8, uh, and he's just talked about the fall, how man was separated from God and how death came upon mankind. In verse 5, Behold, if Adam had put forth his hand immediately 
and partaken of the tree of life, he would have lived forever, according to the word of God, having no space for repentance. Yea, and also the word of God would have been void, and the great plan of salvation would have been frustrated. And we can skip the next couple of verses. Verse 8, Now behold, it was not expedient that man should be reclaimed from this temporal death, for that would destroy the great plan of happiness. So quite often we think that the the resurrection just means that we're redeemed, quote-unquote, from death, and we think what that means is reversing the process of death. I'd like to read a little quote from President Uchtdorf's talk in April of 2015 called The Gift of Grace, and the idea that we're not just going backwards. He says, the grace of God does not merely restore us to our previous innocent state. So if God had wanted to simply redeem us from death, he could have just had Adam eat of the fruit from the tree of life and he would have lived forever. That would have reversed the process of his, his temporal death. So it is a wonderful gift that we're all redeemed from death, but nevertheless, redemption from death doesn't mean reversing that process. And that's what President Uchtdorf is saying here. He's saying that the atonement doesn't just rewind the clock backwards through the fall. Um, he goes on to say, If salvation means only erasing our mistakes and sins, then salvation, as wonderful as it is, does not fulfill the Father's aspirations for us. His aim is much higher. He wants his sons and daughters to become like him. With the gift of God's grace, the path of discipleship does not lead backward. It leads upward. It leads to heights we can scarcely comprehend. It leads to exaltation in the celestial kingdom of our Heavenly Father, where we, surrounded by our loved ones, receive of His fullness and of His glory. All things are ours, and we are Christ's. Indeed, all that the Father hath shall be given unto us. What he's trying to, the idea that he's trying to get across here is that restoration doesn't mean, as, as Alma is saying, the gift of, of restoration and of resurrection does not mean simply unwinding the events of the fall to the point where we're back to the garden state, the innocent state of Adam and Eve. And, and Christ showed this when he went through all of the things that he suffered. Uh, if we skip now to uh, verses 9 and 10. Therefore, as the soul could never die, and the fall had brought upon all mankind a spiritual death as well as a temporal that is, they were cut off from the presence of the Lord, it was expedient that mankind should be reclaimed from this spiritual death. So the Alma says twice that it wasn't expedient that man should be reclaimed from temporal death. And now he says it was expedient that we should be reclaimed from spiritual death. Then he goes on in verse 13 to talk about repentance. According, therefore, according to justice, this is verse 13 of Alma 42, the plan of redemption could not be brought about only on conditions of repentance of men in this probationary state, yea, this preparatory state. For except it were for these conditions, mercy could not take effect except it should destroy the work of justice. Now the work of justice could not be destroyed. If so, God would cease to be God. Now in my larger presentation on the fall, I talk about how mercy comes about because of the atonement and justice comes about because of the fall. And both of them are a gift. The, the evidence for this is in verse 21. If there was no law given, if men sinned, what could justice do? Or mercy either, for they would have no claim upon the creature. So before the state of the fall, there, justice had no claim on us. After the fall, in the state we were in, justice had a claim on us, but, no, but mercy did not. If the, if, if the atonement were not retroactive, that is to say, then 
we, mercy would have no claim on us and only justice would. In either case, the, the plan of, plans of God would have been frustrated. But in the second case where we, we were only under the sub, oh, subject to the claims of justice, we would have been subject to temporal death and we would have been in hell forever. But as Alma plainly says, if we were trapped in this probationary state forever, that would also be a form of hell because we would never have an end to the probationary state, and therefore there would be no exaltation. So what Alma is trying to get across is that, and what and what Elder Uchtdorf is also saying, is that it is truly a gift that we are given the opportunity to be subject to justice and subject to judgment. Jesus Christ hinted at this idea when he said, just as the Son of Man is lifted up, so will all men, and he, he gave this as a sign, he was saying his crucifixion is a type of things to come. Just as the Son of Man is lifted up, so should all men be lifted up before the Father to be judged of their works, whether they be good or whether they be evil. And the point that I see is that the, the, the gift of Christ's atonement and death and resurrection was that we could all one day have perfect justice, so the idea of justice is not that justice hurts us. What Alma is saying here clearly is that justice is, is a wonderful gift. The idea is that we have to come to hunger for justice. And justice does reward, the, truly reward the righteous. It also punishes the sinner, and hopefully all of us are both, right? We have good and bad in us. And the problem with the lack of mercy is that people who were righteous still had no way to cleanse themselves of their sins. But that didn't mean they weren't righteous. That's what Alma is saying. And so the plan of God includes the, the restoration of good for good, and it also provides for the erasing of sins and the cleansing of sins so that the justice of God could be maintained and allow the righteous to have good restored unto them. So now we're going to back up to Alma chapter 41. And we're going to read verses 2 and 3. I say unto thee, my son, that the plan of restoration is requisite with the justice of God. For it is requisite that all things should be restored to their proper order. Behold, it is requisite and just according to the power of, and resurrection of Christ that the soul of man should be restored to its body and that every part of the body should be restored to itself. And, and you, you maybe hear some echoes of Ezekiel chapter 37 here, the valley of dry bones, but... Alma never had access to those scriptures. And so this is Alma revealing something similar to the Nephites that, that only the Jews in Persia had. That was verse 2, verse 3. And it is requisite with the justice of God that men should be judged according to their works. And if their works were good in this life and the desires of their hearts were good, that they should also at the last day be restored unto that which is good. I guess the point I'm trying to make is that um, you've, you've heard the saying that repentance isn't some sort of plan B for our lives when things go wrong. Repentance is the plan. And the, the point of Alma chapter 41 and 42 is that repentance is so closely tied to the resurrection that we don't really understand all of the benefits that we get from repentance until we're brought before the, the judgment bar of God. And then we see that the mercy of Christ actually has claim upon us. So on the one hand, it is, hopefully, our righteousness that unlocks the blessings 
of the restoration of all things so that when justice has claim on us, then we have good restored unto us. And on the other hand, it's entirely due to the grace of Christ that mercy also has claim on us and can cleanse us of our sins and allow us to enter into God's presence. And all of these things come about because of the resurrection. Elder Christofferson, in his conference talk from last week, Preparing for the Lord's Return, expressed a similar idea about the resurrection. And as he's, as he's in a conference in uh, Buenos Aires, he, he says he had two very important promptings from the Holy Ghost. And one was that the work of uh, charitable ministering to temporal needs was very important. And then the second one was this. He says, quote, Beyond selfless service, it is supremely important to prepare the world for the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he talks about all of the events that need to happen leading up to the resurrection. That was at the beginning of the talk. And here's a quote from the end. He says, And so this Easter, let us truly celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ and all that it portends. His return to reign for a thousand years of peace, a righteous judgment and perfect justice for all, the immortality of all who ever lived upon this earth, and the promise of eternal life. Christ's resurrection is the ultimate assurance that all will be put right. Let us be about building up Zion to hasten that day. So he's also talking about the connection between the resurrection and the restoration of all things. What a wonderful and glorious gift it is. How grateful I am for a Savior who loved me enough to die for me and a God who was both willing to send Christ to earth to die for me, but also who was willing to be patient with me through my own process of repentance. And I, I pray we will keep that those ideas with us throughout this Easter season. We can remember always the sacrifice of Christ and that this terrible chapter in human history didn't end in defeat, but it ended in victory. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.